Have you ever seen or heard something that left you confused? I'm not, I'm not talking about one of my sermons. Get there. Okay. Um, maybe someone sent you a message uh, and you understood what they said, but not exactly what they meant. Some of us maybe find ourselves confused more often than others. I don't know. But have you ever been in that situation? It's where Peter finds himself in Luke's account here in the book of Acts, chapter 10, as we began last week and we looked at the first 17 verses. In verse 17, in verse 18, or rather, sorry, verse 17, we find Peter in a bit of confusion. Luke says this, Now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision, which he had seen, meant, Behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and hear words from you. Then he invited the man and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. The vision that Peter had seen, if you remember from last week, was of a sheet let down from heaven that was filled with all sorts of unclean animals. And God had made them clean, he said. He told Peter to kill them and eat them. Three times Peter had refused. And again, the vision itself was clear. It wasn't difficult for Peter to understand what God was saying. But its greater meaning was still a mystery to him. God had revealed this truth to Peter. And as he sat on the housetop of Simon the Tanner, the men sent from this Roman centurion Cornelius arrived and asked to see Peter. The same moment the Spirit spoke directly to him, telling him to go with the men, trusting that they were sent by God. Uh, their appearance at that moment was no coincidence. And they told Peter that their master, a man whom they described as righteous and devout, with a good reputation among the Jews in Caesarea, had responded to a message from God to summon Peter. And here Peter is still trying to get his mind straight and understand just what it is that God has shared with him. And then come knocking on the door these three Gentiles, wanting Peter to come back to their master's house. Telling Peter that God had sent them through the command of their master to him. I'm sure that at this point, Peter began to understand. In fact, I, I think the evidence here in verse 23 is that Peter began to understand the meaning of the vision just a little bit. He began to see the significance. These Gentiles had come to his door. And 
granted in, in their culture, hospitality was very important. And yet, to take a Gentile in off the streets, uh, someone who is a, a dirty, unclean, uncircumcised Gentile into your home, was certainly not standard practice for the Jews. And yet, what did Peter do? He recognized clearly that these men were coming on the behest of God. I mean, the Spirit had told him that these men were being sent to him. And so he welcomed them in. I don't know about you, this is a completely a side note, but I just find it fascinating that Peter is staying in someone else's house, and he welcomed them and lodged them, which is nice. <laughs> when your guest invites other guests to come and stay with you. Um, that's nice. Um, again, hospitality is very important. And so what happens? And by the way, we're, we're going to try and cover this this week or t- today. So we're covering a lot of ground here. So bear with me as we read some larger passages of Scripture. But, but these men have come to Peter. He's seen the vision from the Lord. The Spirit has spoken to him. Now these men have come. And they've asked that he go back with them to Caesarea. A long, in fact, more than a day's journey north uh, up the coast. And so... We're told that the next day they left. The next morning. And it took them more than a day to get to Caesarea. And so the following day they arrived in Caesarea. And what we find is that when they get there, Cornelius is prepared for them. In fact, what he's done is he has been very busy. He's invited all of his family and his intimate friends that to be with him to come and to hear what Peter has to say. I don't know what Peter expected when he left. Maybe he thought that a similar thing was happening as what had happened when he had been at Lydda just previous to coming to Joppa. Remember, he was there and he healed Aeneas, and all of a sudden the messengers came from Joppa saying, Hey, uh, Tabitha is dead and we need you to come. And so he was summoned and he healed her. Maybe he's thinking, You know, hey, this centurion wants me to come. Maybe he wants, maybe he has a need. He wants someone healed. I, you know, whatever. And he shows up and it's not just Cornelius there. Like he finds a great crowd of people gathered to hear his message. Well, let's look at there in verse 24. Let's read the next, the next uh, couple of paragraphs here. It says, In the following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I ask then, for what reason have you sent for me? So Cornelius said, four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Therefore, Ascend therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent you, sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now therefore we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. 
the fact that Cornelius had sent his men to get Peter and called together his friends and his family reveals the faith that he had in God and his word. But Cornelius' knowledge was incomplete because when Peter arrived, we find Cornelius bowing down to worship him. Probably thinking that he was some sort of divine messenger, like the angel who had appeared to him. Peter reacted very quickly to stop him, telling him, I'm just a man, lifting him to his feet, I'm just a man, do not worship me. I think it's interesting, and this really highlights what I said last week, that God doesn't use divine messengers to preach the gospel to men. He uses human ambassadors. God does not use divine messengers to speak and preach the gospel to men. He doesn't. He uses human ambassadors. And Peter was nothing more than an average man who had trusted in Christ and received mercy. That's it. Let's not make Peter into something he wasn't. Yes, he was an apostle. But all that means is that he was chosen by God as his messenger. To be a witness to the things that he had seen. He wasn't superhuman. He wasn't any more righteous or deserving than anyone else. In fact, we know about Peter. We know what his tendencies were. We know that it was Peter who three times denied Christ while he was on trial for his life. Swearing that he even did not know him at all. And this same man, this very same man, not a divine messenger, not some superhuman character, just a man who'd been forgiven by the mercy of God, finds himself here. And Cornelius, thinking he's some sort of divine being, tries to worship him. And Peter Coming into the home of this Gentile, it's kind of an interesting situation. It's hard for us to really wrap our minds around because we just don't have the same kind of prejudices. At least not in the same way that they did. And it's difficult for us to understand how hard this must have been for Peter. You know, It's been two days since he saw his vision of the sheet being let down from heaven. And he's obeyed the voice of the Lord. The Spirit told him to go with these men. So he did. He obeyed. But he finds himself in the home of a Gentile. And I think we see that Peter is struggling a little bit with this. He's a little bit uncomfortable. He's obeyed. He's done what God asked. But he's not really sure that this is a good place for him to be. And no doubt, the men who accompanied him these were told in verse 23 that some men from Joppa, some brethren, some Christian Jewish men from Joppa came with him. Verse 45 tells us uh, again that these were believers. In chapter 11 we find that there, were, that there were half a dozen of them who came with him. They hadn't seen the vision. Peter was the one who saw the vision. These Jews are now inside of a Gentile home. 
No doubt they were a little bit nervous as well. This was not a place of comfort for them. Out of their element, to say the least. There's a lot of danger around them. They're worried because they might touch something, or they might eat something, or they might be exposed to something that would make them unclean. Because everyone knew Gentiles were unclean, and everything they did was unclean. They didn't eat the right kinds of foods. They didn't prepare them in the right way. They didn't cleanse themselves properly. Not according to the standards of the Old Testament law. And so they were uncomfortable. Not in a place they want to be. And Peter gets right to the point. This is not surprising. This is the way Peter is, right? He explains that it violated Jewish custom for them to enter the home. In fact, he says here that it's unlawful. But, but I don't think he means unlawful. There's no explicit law in the Old Testament that says that a Jew couldn't be in the home of a Gentile. But certainly this was tradition and very powerful, ingrained deeply in Peter's life. And he says, verse 28, that God had shown him not to call any man common or unclean. And so he came and he knew that God had sent him and he was obeying God, but that got him in the door. But we can almost sense that that Peter is eager to get on with whatever it is Cornelius wants him to do and get out of there. This is a little bit much to ask him. He has never in his life gone and stayed in a Gentile's home, let alone eaten in a Gentile's home. And so here he finds himself, ready to get on with whatever Cornelius wants him to do. And again, Cornelius... I love this. Peter says to him there in verse verse uh, uh, twenty nine. Listen, okay, I came. I did. What, I, I I know that God wants me to be here. I'm here. Now tell me what I'm supposed to do. And Cornelius answers him, and I love what Cornelius says. He tells him that four days ago. He says I was praying, and he says while I was praying, God sent an angel to me. He calls him here a man in bright clothing. Which is when we see angels described in Scripture, many times they're described in in radiant clothing. And that's what he describes here. A man, an angel came to me. And he told me that God had seen my devotion and had received it and was responding, sending me to find you because you would have something to tell me. And he says, in verse 33, You've done well to come. Now, we're all present before God to hear the things that God has commanded you. It kind of reminds me of the odd couple. A little bit. These are two of the most unlikely people that would ever be standing face to face in this place having a conversation. Apart from God's intervention, Peter and Cornelius would never have met. Not in a million years. Peter. If it weren't for God, Peter would have continued to separate himself from the Gentiles because of his Jewish upbringing and his commitment to the law. And and I don't mean because he was still a Jew. I mean because even as a Christian... Peter would have continued to separate from the Gentiles. Because he, even as a Christian, was not about to violate God's law. 
or to turn away from his Jewish upbringing. He didn't see his Jewishness or his his commitment to the law as being a hindrance to Christianity. He understood that God doesn't change. And so the same God who gave the law to the Jews in the Old Testament and sent Christ, he wasn't destroying what he had earlier set up. He had fulfilled it. And so Peter didn't see any inconsistency here. He was going to keep the law. He was going to continue to stay faithful to that. And he was prepared to do that. He would have never gone to this Gentile's house to share the gospel with him, to speak to him, to to eat with him, or to have anything to do with him. And Cornelius, on his part, would have continued to worship God in the synagogue, never hearing the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. By their own admission, these two men were brought to this place by God's hand. That's what I think we see in this passage. By the way, when Cornelius here in verses 30 to 33, when he explains what happened and why he sent for Peter, it's the third time already in this chapter that we've heard about Cornelius receiving a vision and being sent to find Peter. Do you think that's significant? That Luke would repeat it three times in less than 35 verses? I think so. And we don't have Peter's vision repeated. He just says that God had showed him not to call any man uncommon. Referring back to that. But Cornelius, we have an explanation of what happened to him three times already. I think it's important. What does it tell us? It tells us that God was the mover behind this event. In fact, God is always the mover behind the disciple-making process. Every time that someone hears the gospel, every time that someone is born again by the power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ, God is at work. This is the first principle that we learn from this passage. God is responsible for our salvation from beginning to end. Understand this. This principle is absolutely vital for us to grasp this morning. God is responsible for our salvation from beginning to end. Without God, Peter and Cornelius never meet up. The gospel doesn't get preached. Nothing happens among the Gentiles in Caesarea. And the the church continues to be a Jewish phenomenon. But in truth, we recognize that God is responsible. Now some of you might say, wait a second. Hey, hold on a second, Pastor. Didn't Cornelius and Peter both have to act? Didn't each of them have to be responsible for his own obedience? Don't they bear some responsibility here? Don't they have a role here in this circumstance? In the evangelization of a lost soul. Well, that's true. They did have to act. They did have to obey. They did have to respond. But I want you to understand that God moved first. God moved first. He gave Cornelius the instruction to find Peter. And he showed Peter that his prejudice against the Gentiles was unfounded. God is responsible for our salvation from beginning to end. It's the Holy Spirit who leads believers to share the gospel with the lost. 
You see, left to our own devices, we're selfish. We're fearful. We're incapable. The gospel cannot and would not ever be preached by us if it were not for the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, prompting us, leading us, directing us, empowering us, giving us courage and strength. We could never do it. We would never do it. Not only that, but the flip, but the other side of the, of the coin is true as well, that, that the Holy Spirit convicts men of sin, of righteousness and of judgment. You see, God is at work in both ends of the process. He is the power behind it. Even while He uses men and women and sometimes other instruments to accomplish His will. There's a story told about John Wesley he was holding a, a meeting in a small town. And there was a, a, an ungodly man who was fond of music, and he decided to attend the meeting. He wanted to hear what he called the good singing, but he planned to stop listening when Wesley began to preach. And so he sat quietly until the song service ended, and then he covered his ears as Wesley began to preach. Suddenly, though, a fly landed on his nose. He tried to shake it off, but to no avail. The tickling effect was so irritating that he finally had to use one hand to shoo away the insect. At that precise moment, Wesley was quoting Jesus' words, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. <laughs> the man was startled, and he kept listening. And through the gospel message that was preached, he was converted. You see, God used even a fly to reach a rebellious sinner. But God is the one who did it. We understand this. Please understand this morning. God is the one. He is the one responsible for salvation. From its very inception, John 3.16 tells us this. That God loved the world so much that He... Gave. You see, without that, nothing else works. We cannot get to Him. He came to us. That's the only way this could possibly work. God was the first mover. He sent Christ to earth to die. John 3.16 tells us that. Do we have to believe? Yes. Because He moved first. God is the first mover. He's also the last one. Because He's the one that saves us. And it's the power of His Holy Spirit that saves us. Brings us into new life. God is responsible for our salvation. Beginning and Peter I think after hearing Cornelius say this himself, realized that this encounter was fortuitous. And he began to preach what really is a very simple message to Cornelius and all of the people in his house. Well, let's take a look in verse 34. Then Peter opened his mouth and he said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. 
But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. I'm going to survey Peter's message fairly quickly. Because I'd like to focus on what happened as Peter was preaching it. He finally understood the meaning of his vision that God is not partial to men. He says that to us in verse 34. God shows no partiality. The interesting thing about this, though, is that it could be very easily misunderstood. You see, Peter is declaring that that God doesn't show favoritism. That He judges all men on the basis of what they have done and that He extends His mercy to all who truly seek Him. The problem is today, there are a lot of people who say, hey, God doesn't play favorites. He loves everyone equally. In fact... God loves every church and every religion equally too. They're all really the same anyways. They all really go to the same place. And today, many have and continue to embrace a pluralistic gospel if there is such a thing. That God is not concerned with religious or theological differences. But that any who fear and obey God are acceptable to Him. And it it almost appears that Peter is saying that. That God doesn't play favorites. He doesn't care who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter anything. As long as you fear God and you do works of righteousness, God will accept you. That you are pleasing to Him. But there's an important word here that I want to look at. It's the word accepted. Ben, Ben Witherington asks, The question, what does acceptable mean or accepted? It appears, he says, to refer to a person being in an acceptable state. And what state is that? It's a state of repentance. A person who is in an acceptable state to hear and receive the message of salvation and release from sins. You see, he's not saying that Cornelius, because of his piety, was already saved apart from having faith in Jesus Christ. He's not saying that Cornelius, you've done good works, 
You've prayed, and that's good enough. God's happy with you. Because you fear God and you have done works of righteousness that you now, Cornelius, you're good. You're accepted by God. If that were the case, then Peter could just put a period and end his message right there. Why would he need to say anything else? No, what Peter says, I believe, what he means is that because Cornelius had been sincerely seeking the truth, that God was willing to reveal the truth to him. We've seen this before. In fact, if you remember, we don't have time to turn there. But in the Gospels, we looked in the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus looked at the Pharisees, those men who had, who on the outward were very godly men because they kept the law meticulously. And yet inwardly, he said, you're corrupt. Remember, he said, you're like a, you're like a whitewashed sepulcher. You look really good on the outside, but inside you're filled with dead men's bones. And and Jesus said to them, he said, listen. He said, I'm going to speak in parables so that you can hear and not understand. But you remember what Jesus said. We, We talked about this back when we looked at the Gospels. Jesus was intentionally hiding the truth from those who did not have faith. Even as he revealed truth to those who did. You see, anyone who had faith in Christ, he was more than willing to shower them with more. The disciples were that way. As, as confused and, and as often as they missed it, they did genuinely believe in Christ. And so what happened? Time and again, he revealed his power and his authority to them over and over and over in ways that he never did to the crowds and the multitudes who didn't really have faith in him. When he began to speak the harder truths of the Christian faith, those crowds dissolved and went. And those true followers, the ones that had faith, they stayed and they received more. And that was the principle that we saw that Jesus taught, that the one who has more will be given him. And the one who doesn't have, it will be taken away even what he has. He's referring to faith. What we see here is that Peter acknowledges, Cornelius, I have been sent to you because I've been taught this principle. And it doesn't matter what nation, it doesn't matter what your background is, it doesn't matter what ethnicity you are, it doesn't matter what social class you're in. If you have faith, God will reveal His truth to you. And I am the instrument that God is going to use to do that. And I'm willing to go anywhere where they have faith. I mean, this principle is all throughout Scripture. Jesus told the disciples when he sent them out, go into a city and preach, and if they will not hear you, then shake the dust off of your clothes and off of your shoes as you leave. And don't go back. If they receive you, then go in and share with them the wonderful message. You see, it's all precipitated on that response of faith. And Peter recognized here that even this Roman centurion, because he demonstrated faith, was worthy of hearing the message of the gospel. Because he was truly seeking God, seeking the truth, God was going to reveal it to him. You see, fearing God and doing good works do not make us pleasing to God. 
But they do bring us into a proper position to hear the truth and to receive salvation. And what is the gospel according to Peter? Because he goes on now in verses 36 to 43 to explain to Cornelius what the gospel is. And what is it? It's primarily a message of peace. Peace with God. Peace with man. And peace within. It was first given to the Jews, being preached through Galilee and Judea, beginning with John the Baptist. And what did John the Baptist teach? He taught men to repent of their sin and to be baptized in preparation for the coming of the Savior. In other words, the Jews were instructed to do exactly what Cornelius has already done. Prepare themselves to hear the message of peace. If Christ truly is Lord of all, as Peter declares him to be in verse 36, then we would expect his life to demonstrate the power of God himself, wouldn't we? And what does Peter say? He says that when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit fell on him. Remember, like a dove? And the, the, the blessing of God, as God spoke from heaven, the power of God. And Christ exercised the Spirit's power, Peter says. He says there in verse 38 that he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. This is exactly what we would expect. If Jesus is Lord of all, then he would stand toe-to-toe with the powers of darkness and he would defeat them. And Peter says it's exactly what Jesus did. He, in the power of the Holy Spirit, he healed. He, he released those who were under Satan's oppression. He overcame the, the power of Satan in the lives of the people. Proving that his power was from God. Because only God and his power could overthrow Satan. Remember, Jesus was accused one time of casting out demons in Satan's power, right? And he said, how ridiculous is that? That Satan could be opposed to himself? His kingdom would not stand. Jesus said, no, no, no. The fact that I cast out demons is proof that my power comes from God. And Peter says, that's the power that he demonstrated in his life. All through, from Galilee down to Judea, that Jesus went everywhere, healing, freeing the oppressed. It was clear, he says, that God was with him. But you know, that's not all. Peter speaks, and he says here, this is not second-hand knowledge. He says, I am an eyewitness of these events. I saw the power that Christ exercised. Peter in the boat, in the midst of a storm. And Christ says, peace, be still. And everything is immediately silenced. Peter, walking across the water, right? Looking to Jesus and walking, placing his feet on water and without sinking until he began to waver in his faith. Someone, I just heard a message on this recently. 
How do you think Peter got back in the boat? You think Jesus carried him? I doubt it. He walked. I don't think he took his eyes off Christ another second. He walked. Right back to the boat. And see, Peter was an eyewitness. He'd seen it. He knew. And he says to Cornelius, I'm an eyewitness of the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ. But more than that, Cornelius, I was there. I was there in Jerusalem when the Jewish leaders arrested Jesus. I, I was there. They put him on trial. They falsely accused him. They put him to death in the most despicable fashion. And could you imagine, just for a moment, the kind of grief that must have come back to Peter's heart at that moment? How could Peter ever speak of the cross without being reminded of his own failure, of his own inability to stand and stay true? Do you ever have something that happens that reminds you of a sin you committed in the past? Something that you confessed? Something that, you, that the Lord has, has brought you through and, and, and you're not, it's not a current sin. It's something in the past, but it's still there because it doesn't disappear. You ever, are you ever reminded of that? Ever some circumstance? Maybe something that happens or something that you hear or something someone says or a person maybe that you, know, you, 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 you look back and you think, man, my history with that person is not so great. And you're reminded of that. And you have, maybe for at least for, for a moment, you have that twinge of guilt as you remember how weak you are. We, can't, we shouldn't dwell on those things. But it's not bad for us to remember how weak we are. It's not bad for us to remember that we all have feet of clay. We so easily fall. And Peter... I, I can't imagine that any time throughout his life he could speak of the cross without thinking of that night and his failure. And then remembering how Jesus Christ had forgiven him even though he had denied him. And the love that must have sprung from that realization in Peter's heart was great. And so I'm sure with great emotion. Peter said to Cornelius, I saw it. I was an eyewitness. I watched as cruel men crucified my Savior. And then the smile on his face as he says, but God raised him from the dead. Oh, wonder. The excitement. I saw him not hanging on a tree, bloody and broken. I saw him alive. Oh, how my heart was just swelled to overflowing. This is the, the crux of the gospel message. You see, the resurrection to unbelievers may appear fantastic, impossible to believe, and yet Peter says, I saw it with my own eyes. And not only, he says, did I see him. But notice what he says here in verse 41. He says, he was, he says I was a chosen eyewitness who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. It wasn't a figment of my imagination. It wasn't a ghost. It wasn't a spirit or some spooky thing. It was a man who took food and he took drink, and he consumed it with us. I know he 
is alive. Peter, an eyewitness, giving his, his own powerful testimony as evidence for the truth of the resurrection. Earlier, Cornelius in verse 33 had wondered about what God had commanded Peter to speak. Peter now, toward the end of his message in verse 42, explains that his commission includes offering eyewitness testimony. Not just that Christ died, not just that He rose again, but that He has ascended. He offers His own eyewitness testimony that Jesus Christ was exalted to God's right hand to be the judge of all men. You may remember that Luke recorded Jesus' ascension in Acts 1. And and, and when we studied that, I, I, I tried to emphasize how significant that event is. You see, many times we focus on the death and the resurrection of Christ and we ignore His ascension. But you need to understand something. The ascension of Christ is vital to our faith. Because Jesus Christ is the judge of all. And He sits exalted at the throne of God with the authority and power to stand in judgment of everyone. And the ascension, that's where that happened. That was the day, that was the moment where He left this earth and He returned to His rightful place as the Lord of all and the judge of all. He's not waiting for that. That's not coming in the future. He is there today as the Lord of all and judge of all. Peter explains that God has given Christ the authority to judge both the living and the dead. And what standard of judgment will Christ use? This is what Peter gets to in verse 43. The standard is this. That anyone who believes in Christ will receive deliverance from their sins. This Christ, who is both Lord of all and Judge of all, offers forgiveness. Literally, release from the penalty, power, and presence of sin. The Gospel truly is a message of peace. Now you may wonder... If you've been paying attention over the last few months, you might say, Pastor, you've spent an awful lot of time every week, it seems like, preaching about the simple gospel of Christ. And I say, yes, you're right, I have. And there's two reasons for that. One is because it's in the book of Acts, all over, repeated constantly. And number two is because I don't take anything for granted. I don't want to assume that you know this truth. I don't want to assume that you have received Jesus Christ as your Savior. I want you to understand this truth, not intellectually, but in your heart, to know it. Peter, as he's preaching, I think he was getting ready to go on into the Old Testament and explain how the prophets look forward to this and go back and and tie His message into the Old Testament. But He never got a chance to. 
He references the prophets in verse 43. And then he's interrupted. Let's look at verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. As many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered. Well, we'll go ahead to that next in a minute. Peter is in the midst of speaking. And the Holy Spirit was sent by God to Cornelius and his friends and family. <laughs> I find it interesting here. Peter didn't even give a, get a chance to give an invitation. Nobody had the opportunity to pray. They didn't walk an aisle. They didn't lay hands on anyone. They simply believed the message of the gospel that Peter was in the middle of preaching. He hadn't even gotten to his conclusion yet. And as a preacher, that's horrible. I need just craft this whole message and you're ready and halfway through and it doesn't even, you know, you can't even get finished. Peter never even got to finish. The response was instantaneous. We're told that all who heard Peter's message received the Spirit, having received first the truth concerning Christ as the Lord and Judge of all. These Jewish believers who had accompanied Peter were astonished. They were surprised. They heard the Gentiles speaking in tongues. We're told in Scripture that tongues were given as a sign to the Jews. It's a sign, all right. They heard it, and they recognized immediately that God was doing something incredible to these Gentiles and with these Gentiles. They recognized that just as the Holy Spirit had been poured out on them earlier the day of Pentecost, He was being poured out now on these Gentiles. But this brings us to the second principle that we learned from this passage. And I know I'm almost out of time, so I'm going to try and move quickly. But the second principle, not only is salvation the responsibility of God from beginning to end, but salvation is always accomplished on God's terms. You see, we can add nothing to it, and we can take nothing away from it, or else it's not true salvation. The Bible says that He saves those who repent and believe, without exception, without fanfare, without baptism, without church membership, without good works. When men begin to add requirements to the gospel, we take the place of God. It's His salvation after all. Because salvation begins and ends with God, He dictates the terms on which he will forgive sinners. And that's what we see happen here. While Peter is in the midst of speaking. Why? Because God honors faith. He doesn't need works. He doesn't need a prayer prayed. He doesn't need an aisle walked. He doesn't need just as I am and an invitation. He doesn't need any of that stuff. He needs faith. That's it. And when they responded by faith in Jesus Christ, that's it. He saved them. He poured out His Spirit as proof of their faith. And it was done. Nothing that Peter could say or do, nothing that the men from Jerusalem could say or do, nothing that anyone could do, because God 
chose to grant salvation to these Gentiles without any human intervention on his own terms. And that's just the way that God saves everyone. God took all of this out of the hands of the Jews. There's no human agent in salvation. There's not. There's preachers. There's witnesses who bring the message of salvation to the lost. But none of us can save anyone. No church can save anyone. No priest or minister, no guru or life coach. We're completely helpless to save. Only God can save. And God only saves in His way and in His time. I've heard people say, and maybe you have too, when I die, I'm pretty sure my good will outweigh my bad and God will let me into heaven. But this ignores the fact that you and I do not determine how God will judge. Christ is the judge of all. And he's already set the terms. What does he say here? According to Peter, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Not whoever does more good than bad. Or whoever isn't as bad as other people. What about those people who say, my parents had me baptized so I can go to heaven. Again, I say, you do not get to decide the standard that God uses to judge. Whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Not whoever was baptized will be forgiven. Salvation is always and only accomplished on God's terms and in his way. The final two verses of this chapter teach us the third principle of the passage. And it's very simple. The sign of water baptism is based on the substance of spirit baptism. Look at these verses. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water? that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Peter proposed water baptism for Cornelius and those in his house, but only after they had received the Spirit in response to their faith. We could maybe paraphrase Peter by saying this, if God approved of their faith, how could he not approve it? How could we deny it? The point is that baptism doesn't bring us into favor with God. It simply reflects the favor that we've already found with God by virtue of our faith. And there are some implications to this fact. The first implication of that fact is that infant baptism is excluded. No infant can possibly understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, let alone express faith in him. Therefore, baptizing a baby does nothing more than get him wet. Water baptism is a symbol. It's a shadow, if you will. The substance of it is spirit baptism. And since no infant can possibly receive the Holy Spirit, no infant can be biblically baptized. The second implication is that baptism cannot confer grace. Because grace had already been given. And the Spirit had already been received. And Peter, who recognized the presence of the Holy Spirit, used that as justification for baptizing these people in water. There are biblical prerequisites for baptism in the church. Namely, faith in Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, faith in Christ is a matter of the heart. It can be expressed through the lips 
And I'm sure we've all heard folks who said they believed one thing and acted another way and were inconsistent with what they said they believed. But what about the presence of the Holy Spirit? You might ask this question, how can we know when someone has received the Spirit? Should we expect them to speak in tongues like the Gentiles did here? That was the evidence here. They heard the Gentiles speaking in tongues and therefore they knew they'd received the Spirit and they baptized them. Maybe we should wait for people to speak in tongues. Well, I've got to be honest, you'll be waiting quite a while if you do that. Because they weren't speaking in gibberish, they were speaking another language. An unknown language to them, but a language nonetheless. A human language from earth. Just like they were in Acts 2 when they spoke in languages and the people from all the diverse areas of the Roman world heard them in their own language. But we have to remember that this, when we compare this account with the Samaritans' conversion in Acts 8 and the Jews' conversion in Acts 2, we find there's no pattern available to us to tell us that, that, that tongue speaking is part of this process. In Acts 2, the Jews who received the gospel were baptized, but there's no mention of any specific manifestation of the Spirit. In Acts 8, they were baptized before they received the Spirit. And then after they were baptized, Peter and John laid hands on them and they spoke in tongues. And here in Acts 10, the believers received the Holy Spirit first, speaking in tongues, even though Peter had never laid a hand on them, and only after that were they baptized. You see, there's only one manifestation of the Spirit promised to all believers in Scripture. You may be familiar with it. It's found in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. Paul says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. When someone has received Christ, the presence of the Spirit produces these attributes which replace the works of the flesh. And these are the attributes that we as a church ought to look for that would signify that a person truly knows Christ, at least to whatever extent we can possibly discern that. And upon that base, decision to baptize. That's what Peter did. If God has granted salvation by his power and the work of his hands, according to the means prescribed in Scripture, then we as a church ought to recognize God's work and extend our own invitation to become a member of this body. This morning, God is at work. I don't know if you realize that. Right here, right now, God is at work. He has ordained that you should be, excuse me, that you should be here today to hear the message of the gospel. He has ordained that I should be here to preach it to you. It is wholly a work of His grace that He should reveal Jesus Christ as the Lord of all who came to die for your sins and mine on the cross of Calvary. It was by God's power alone that Christ rose from the dead and has now ascended to heaven to sit as our judge. And though you and I are guilty of breaking God's law and deserving of death, He offers a pardon. If you will believe in the name of Christ, will you turn from your sin and self-reliance and trust Christ today? You do not have to do anything to be saved. God will save you if you have faith in Christ. Maybe you've been saved, but you've never been baptized. The question that Peter asks is appropriate for you this morning. Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized to have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? If you know Jesus Christ and you've received the Spirit, then come and be baptized. Joining the fellowship of the saints here and obeying the command of Christ. Let's pray.